Alright, salamu alaikum everybody. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Aid Mubarak. I'm excited to be here. This for me is the greatest way to spend your Aid. So even if no one else is here, I'm, there's nowhere else I would rather be. And subhanAllah, we've had a lot of like holidays and birthdays and things and anniversaries this year that fell on a halakha day. And so that's a gift to me. I think this is really like wonderful. So and hopefully people will catch up with us after their Eid celebration. So it'll make it even doubly special, inshallah. So anyway, but I hope wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're having an amazing Eid. Um, and I wanted to actually on that note, well, first of all, let me start. But as always, I have to mention how incredible the khutbah was yesterday, because I feel like every week just, you know, adds a new level of understanding um, to our world and what's happening behind the scenes. Um, yesterday, um, the, the khutbah I think is titled The Truth, um, or sorry, The Trust, and um, When You Put Your Hands in the Hands of the Indecent. And so it was extremely timely um, because we're talking about Surah Al-Azhab, Azhab, and we're talking about um, the issue of the amana, the trust that Allah gave to human beings. And um, Sheikh talked yesterday about this metaphor, what it means. Um, and then also moved into what's happening in the Middle East as Biden is getting ready to head there and all of the workings that are happening behind the scenes um, and what is basically building up to a conflict based on this idea of Sunnis via Shi'is. Um, it was a really in-depth, um, important khutbah that every Muslim should listen to to understand what is happening in our world. Um, and it closed with also a summation of what happened at Hajj, um, because as people know, um, Sheikh has been talking about the circumstances um, under which Hajj is controlled. And now we have seen the consequences of what happens when people have invested you know, their life savings into going to Hajj, and that money is given to this um, agency that has um, ties to the Modi, um, very Islamophobic Indian government, Lots of people lost their money. Lots of people were told that they had reservations only to discover that they didn't actually have reservations or a place to stay. There was no refunds that were happening. You know, a lot of people obviously spend their entire life waiting for this one opportunity and to have that crushed um, with no recourse is devastating. And so therefore the idea of what happens when you put your hand in the hands of the indecent um, and there's just so much learning, so I really have to underscore how important it is for everyone to, to watch that. Um, but on this Aid al-Adha, I thought I would also share um, a really important thing that we had actually posted on social media, but there are people who, who either don't see it or are not, are not on social media. But it was um, you know, this idea of giving money to the slaughter of animals and the idea of the you know, adiyya and um, alternative ways to approach this because you know clearly a lot of people are concerned about how animals are treated they're concerned about you know being vegan and not wanting their money going to, to killing animals or having animals being treated cruelly so I just wanted to call attention to um, this really lovely answer that Sheikh had written um, in response to a question actually quite a few years ago you can find it on the searchforbeauty.org website but it has to do um, with the sacrifice of Aid al-Adha um, and, you know, as you can imagine, um, Sheikh, you know, the person who writes is asking, uh, you know, basically she's got, you know, concerns about, you know, the treatment of animals and, and does she need to um, give money for this in support of it? Are there other things to do? So he, of course, gives a whole history of, um, you know, the, the ruling and um, 
I just wanted to share this very last part. It's a long um, write-up, and it's really worth um, everyone's um, time to read and understand, um, but this is, was really special. Um, note that there is another suppressed and forgotten meaning in the whole logic of the Odia. The initial idea was to bring the various classes of society together in a social event where the poor dine with the rich, eating the food items of the rich at the same table. In other words, the sunnah was to slaughter animals and then to share the meat with needy families in festive social events. Today, Muslims have transformed the practice so it has lost much of its original meaning. The desperate classes of disparate classes of society do not come together over festive events, but rather meat is distributed in ways that are impersonal and at times demeaning to the needy. In order to rekindle the meaning and true spirit of Aid al-Adha, I would recommend that other than paying the zakat due at Aid al-Adha, which, as I said above, is not necessarily limited to payment to a butcher, but could be a payment directly to the needy, that one organize meals and social events that would bring the community together and would fulfill the original meaning of Aid al-Adha in acts of sharing and kindness with others. Um, I do realize that so many Muslims today seem to be under the mis misimpression that the whole point of Aid al-Adha is either to slaughter a sheep or pay for the slaughter of the sheep. The point of Aid al-Adha is not the sheep or the meat. The point is sharing and community and above all, brotherhood and sisterhood in the true sense of the word. To my knowledge, among the classical jurists, it is well established that money can be dispensed directly to the needy so that they may feed themselves in the way they see most fit, and one does not need to be limited to the distribution of meat. In fact, some jurists have allowed the distribution of whatever food material is most expensive and unattainable by the needy, be it meat or some other consumption item. So I thought that was really beautiful, and again, you can find the, the full um, write-up on the searchforbeauty.org website under the fatwa section. Um, and in that spirit, I thought I would just share um, some really wonderful organizations that are serving the needy, and especially now in these times where we know there's um, a lot of um, really difficult times. There's a huge famine um, about to take place or taking place in Somalia. Um, there are you know, obviously um, people in need, Muslims in particular, all around the world. So I wanted to share some of these um, organizations that I, I have found to be amazing. Um, Oxfamamerica.org. They do a lot of work in 90 countries around the world. They help refugees, but they also get involved in climate change and other issues that you know um, serve the disempowered. Um, UMrelief.org. They're working in Bangladesh. Um, the Little Hearts Foundation, which is, of course, um, we've talked about here before, which takes care of Syrian orphans. Um, I love Doctors Without Borders because they help people all around the world. Um, LifeUSA.org, um, which is also known as Life for Relief and Development. They have a, a really wonderful orphans program also. Um, Amoud, A-M-O-U-D, Foundation.org, um, that works in Africa. So that's a really great place to um, support, um, you know, all the people that are suffering from, from lack of food and water. Um, and then for the Uyghurs, um, there's the, the campaignforuyghurs.org, and then there's also the, the Uyghur Human Rights Project, uhrp.org. And then lastly, I thought I would also mention this really incredible organization that most people know. It's jewishvoiceforpeace.org. Um, and I think the reason why um, they're very interesting, they have a really cool story if you don't know it. Um, this was an organization that was started back in 1996 by three UC Berkeley students, and they were an all-volunteer group that opposed what was happening in, in Israel with the Palestinians. Um, and they 
started just as, you know, like a peace group. Um, and then in 2002, they decided to build a larger grassroots base. Um, and then they started raising funds. And so today they have 200,000 supporters, um, 10,000 individual donors, 60 chapters across the U.S., a staff of 28, a rabbinic council, an artist council, an academic advisory council, a health council, a youth wing, an advisory board consisting of some of the best-known Jewish thinkers of our time. This is important because their position is actually really consistent with what Muslims want for Israel and Palestine. They are, um, and they support BDS. They were the first um, major Jewish group that um, demanded that American military aid be withheld um, until Israel ends its occupation. Um, they believe in the right to return of Palestinians, and they believe that Israel needs to acknowledge the Nakba, um, which was in 1947 and through 1949. And they also argue, obviously, that you can be critical of Israel without being accused of being an anti-Semite. So, you know, a lot of what they are working for is, um, as they say, a um, political conditions um, that will allow Israelis and Palestinians to achieve a just and lasting peace. Um, and they um, are, you know, look, working to change U.S. policy and, um, you know, believe in uh, the uh, human rights, um, all of the, you know, the uh, articles of human rights that, that should apply. So they, they do a lot of really important work, and I think that they are particularly effective because they are working from, you know, within the Jewish tradition, but they are very open-minded, and I found that um, they are, you know, one of these sort of, I think, exemplar organizations where you can work from within a faith tradition, but you're working based on principle and virtue um, for the betterment of humanity and a situation. And that's, I think, a role model for Muslim organizations and all organizations, in fact. So um, I think it's a, a really important cause also to support as Muslims. So I just wanted to share that. Um, you know, I, I think that there's so much that, that we can do. There are a lot of people doing really good work on the front line and in the spirit of Aid and taking care of others and, you know, donating um, that this is a, a wonderful way to celebrate Daid um, and bring some goodness into the world, especially as we continue learning uh, more about Surah al-Azab. So thank you, everybody, for joining us on the Aid, And um, I hope I'm looking forward to an amazing session, an amazing continuation of, of the discussion of the Surah. So thank you. خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين So, I, uh, I'm told we stopped at around verse 19. Um, a quick uh, 
just so we we're all on the quick overview um so we recall that although surah al-ahzab begins with a rather surprising beginning because it 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 focuses on the way that people manipulate or construct claim proclaim reality uh, and the illegitimacy of social constructions that are either unjust like the dihar which we've talked about which as we said although directly addressed um, in Surah Al-Mujadala persisted as a practice so the, the difficulty that human beings have even when they say we believe and even when they say we submit and even when they say we obey the difficulty that human beings have in actually um, internalizing and implementing so whether it is a, an institution like the har where it, it, it is an oppressive, unfair institution to women involved, or an, a practice that is very well-intentioned, but that alters biological lineage. And it is, you know, we, we, we can't just say adoption because it, what, what does adoption mean? It's not that, it is not, the prohibition is not that you commit to taking care of an orphan. The prohibition is that you alter the name of the orphan, um, terminating natural biological relations or the potential for natural biological relations um, while giving orphans a, uh, the, the name of the adoptee. And from that, beginning as we said, then that's juxtaposed with the fact that Allah does have the power to re to reconstruct reality so in terms of who in terms of who has the 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 right the, the legitimacy to create um constructions uh, 
that are that are not uh, the, you know, if if you want to be technical about the constructions in law, well, it is Allah that has that power, and not you human beings. Um, I didn't mention this last halaqa, but Razi is probably the only commentator, if as far as I can remember, the only commentator that I remember that notices this and says, but he takes it to a very legal point. And Razi says that the, the reason for this juxtaposition is to underscore legal facts established by Sharia. That something could be a Sharia fact, although contrary to social fact. Now, this this is actually in, in legal systems. This is well-known legal presumptions, whether rebuttable or irrebuttable, but that law will often say, as far as the law is concerned, such and such is a fact. Whether this is it doesn't necessarily have to be logical and it doesn't necessarily have to be actual, but it serves a purpose in law. But I think that here, even beyond law, is this all relates, in, in my view, in Surah Al-Ahzab, to that central theme about two hearts in one chest, that a true commitment would enable you to have the type of resolve and determination to accept the constructions, to accept the reality that Allah wants you to believe in, rather than the reality that your own ego experiences. And we notice that this, of course, is essential for faith because we none of us experience alam al-ghayb or, you know, or if we even experience alam al-ghayb, it's a, to a very limited extent. We only experience an extremely small part of alam al-ghayb. So, you know, if we have paranormal experiences or supernatural experiences and so on, it's part of alam al-ghayb, but it's so small that it doesn't really allow us any real insight in alam al-ghayb. But yet belief, iman, is anchored on what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us about alam al-ghayb. And to fully be aware that my construction of reality to internalize the idea that my construction of reality I defer to what Allah tells me over what I actually experience in person turns out to be as we will see further extremely critical for 
the project of belief itself, the very project of Iman. Okay, and from that, then Allah takes us to the experience that Surah Al-Ahzab is most commonly associated with, and that's the siege of Mecca, that's a siege of Medina. And that at no time are human beings tried and tested to, in fact, abandon their convictions and their beliefs, like when it, it goes against perceived self-interest. And in a state of crisis, a state of crisis tests your perceived sense, sense of self-interest. I mean, in the, in the most, if, you might have to give up your life. Perceived self-interest is the preservation of life. You might have to stick by principle, taking extreme risks that if sticking by principle doesn't go your way, then the price you have to pay will be extremely high. Perceived self-interest is, as we saw, is what enables people to break away from the guidance of the Prophet from, in fact, Uh, from staying the course with the Prophet and to start thinking about well what would serve me personally and as we saw that this is precisely when people start saying well you know that our homes are aura, meaning that, you know, can we go protect our homes and leave you to your fate? They're thinking of, well, you know, if the Kufar, the, the Confederates win this battle and we can say, well, you know, we were not at the trench um, and as we saw that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Ahzab tells them that Allah knows that although you pretended to still remain Muslim, when you told the Prophet, you asked Prophet for permission to withdraw and go take care of your own families, that Allah knows that if in fact the Confederates would have been victorious, you would have reneged on your entire faith. And you would have said whatever would be needed to save your necks and to promote your own. But an extreme test, it is like when you test metal, you apply extreme heat and extreme pressure. A lot of times in order to see the truth of things, you know, a lot of times when we want to see things at the most truthful level at the most 
molecular level, at the quantum level, we apply what? Energy. We apply extreme pressure, extreme heat. And that's Allah's sunnah in creation. The truth of things is often revealed under extreme tests, not when human beings are free to indulge their fantasies, to construct their fantasies and proclaim their fantasies and demand that other people believe their fantasies, but times of real test. Okay. And as we said that the whole the whole set of events in digging the trench and camping next to the mountain um, and withstanding the physical hardship and the, the demoralization of hunger and so on, the narratives that tell, tell us the extent of hardship that Muslims endured, that level of heat that was applied as a test in the Battle of the Trench are many. Um, I mean, so for instance, there is a famous narrative uh, from Huzaifa bin Yaman. And again, you know, it has the earmarks of medieval exaggeration in some parts, or not exaggeration, but medieval presentation. I should put it this way. But it, 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 it it's describing a, a, a basic, essential truth. So, Huzaifa um, bin Yaman, the, the report goes that he's in Kufa and there's a, a, a young man who tells Huzaifa bin Yaman, you actually lived at the time of the Prophet, this is after the Prophet had passed away, and you encountered the prophet, you dealt with the prophet, and of course, Hosefa is a well-known companion. He says, yes, you know. And that young man says, God, you are so lucky. If it was us, meaning his generation, if it was us who would have met the prophet and encountered the prophet, we would have carried him. It, we would have basically would have like taken care of him, even carrying him on our shoulder, our shoulder, our shoulders everywhere. Um, and we would have served him, you know, with complete commitment. And Huzaifa bin Yaman tells this young man. You know, be careful what you're saying. 
and he starts telling him about the events of the Battle of the Trench. And he says, you know, in the Battle of the Trench, things had gotten so desperate that the Prophet ﷺ calls upon the companions and says, um, who, he, he wants to send one of the companions on a mission. And it's basically a, a um, reconnaissance mission. And that he, and here, this is where you get the nature of a medieval narrative, is that he prays and then after he finishes praying, he, he stands up and he says, who will volunteer to go on a reconnaissance mission? And he said, no one volunteered. And then, then he went back and prayed, and then he came out of prayer, and then he said, who will volunteer to go on a reconnaissance mission? And no one volunteered. And Huzaifa explains that all of the companions were hungry, exhausted, shivering from the cold, and just completely worn out. And then this happens three times. For a third time, who will volunteer? No one volunteers. And then he says, the narrative says, that the Prophet ﷺ for the fourth time comes out and he calls upon Huzaifa bin Yaman personally. And he says, Huzaifa, come. And Huzaifa explains in the narrative that I was sitting shivering from exhaustion, hunger, and cold, and that I walked to the Prophet struggling to stabilize myself and extremely that basically I was not this is in the tradition itself that um, that I was not happy that I was chosen for the mission then the narrative goes on to say that then the Prophet ﷺ puts his hand on me and he prays that Allah gives me strength and, 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 and energy and suddenly all the pain and all the anxiety went away. You know, Allahu A'lam, whether this is historical or an exaggeration or in, in fact, you know, some type of... It, it could possibly have, have happened in, in some form or another. But what we get from these narratives is a sense of how difficult that test is or was. Of course, the, the reconnaissance, he does send Huzaifa bin Yaman on a reconnaissance mission, and Huzaifa is basically, he, he, he goes, sneaks to the camp of the enemy um, to see the impact of the wind and called on them. And he comes back reporting that they are extremely de demoralized uh, and that their, their alliance is breaking apart. But the, the part that I'm just focusing on is that that the intensity of the test and the fact that a sizable group um, of Muslims 
whether you know you get various reports that say um, the people that withdrew from the trench and went back to Medina uh, were Banu Haritha or Banu Salama or Ashab uh, al-Aws bin Qaisi. Yes, it's, it's, it included these people, but when you put a list of all the names that have been generated, it's clear that it was a majority of the army that asked permission to go back to Medina and that the, the defenders of the trench were the most faithful and the most resolute. There are many other issues that you know we could have talked about with the Battle of the Trench. Um, there is, um, there's, for instance, the story of Naim bin Mas'ud. Um, this is a story that is often taught um, to to children, and and you know. Uh, when when uh, Naim bin Mas'ud reportedly, according to these narratives, plays a critical role in breaking up the alliance of the Confederates, and that he uh, had that uh, um, it was not known that Naim bin Mas'ud was a Muslim, and that. Uh, the Prophet sends him on a disinformation mission, basically. And reportedly that he goes to Banu Quraiza and he tells the, the, the Jewish tribe, um, when, you, when you talk to the Meccans, uh, the, um, uh, um, he Banu Qurayza thinks that Naim bin Mas'ud is, is not a Muslim and that he's an ally. And so, and he is from the tribe of Ghatafan, which is the Najdi tribe. Anyway, that, so he tells Banu Qurayza that I don't trust the Qurayshis and the Qurayshis might ultimately betray you and withdraw and let you face Muhammad alone. So as a surety that the Quraitis will not betray you, tell Quraysh to, that you want hostages, that you want, that they should get, leave with you men, Quraishi men, as a surety that they're not going to betray you. And then at the same time, he goes to uh, the, the Qurayshis and to his own tribe, Ghatafan, and he says, you know, the Banu Qurayza, you can't trust them, that they plan to betray you, and in fact, what they're planning to do is they're planning to ask for hostages, and then when you give them these hostages, 
they're going to turn the hostages that you give them over to Muhammad and and this way prove their loyalty to Muhammad and the, the uh, Quraysh and Ghatafan fall for it and they say, oh really? And then when Banu Quraysh in fact do show up and they say, we want hostages, they say, oh my God, Naim bin Mas'ud must have been right and that this plays a role in breaking the, the alliance of the Confederacy. Um, does it, you know, describe a kernel of truth, historical truth? Maybe. Um, I have, I'm very skeptical about the story, although it's often, it's, it's taught frequently. I, I mean, um, Largely because Naim bin Mas'ud, it's, it, it seems very suspicious to me that Naim bin Mas'ud would have that type of leverage with the Qurayshis and with Banu Qurayza. It's possible. Uh, you know, it's possible that I'm missing something. Um, it's not material, but but as we will see, there is there is a significant point that has to do with ambiguity and obscurity, historical ambiguity. Just remember that because we'll come back to it, and it's a, you know it's something that that people don't realize about Surat Al Ahzab. Because the historical ambiguities are numerous, as we will see. The historical ambiguities are numerous. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's just so much. Um, there's also for another story, um, Allahu Alam, uh, this, with the, the, the family of the Prophet was put in the residence of Hassan ibn Thabit, as I mentioned last halaqa, the famous poet. And there's an interesting narrative um, Was it Safiya? Did I write it down? No. I, I'm pretty sure it was Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib. So they're in the in that residence, and Banu Qurayza sends someone to start staking out the residence of the Prophet, the the, res, the family of the Prophet residing in the residence of Hassan Musabit during the battle. Banu Qurayza is expecting that the Confederates are going to win the battle and that when they do, they're going to attack the residence of Hassan ibn Thabit and take all the family of the Prophet as slaves. 
So there is a guy staking out sort of a, a reconnaissance mission, seeing who is where in, in the residence of Hassan ibn Sabit. And Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib notices um, that this guy from Banu Khraiza is on a reconnaissance mission. And she goes to Hassan ibn Sabit, the poet, and says, there is a man out there staking out the place, and I recognize the man. He's such and such from the tribe of Banu Khraiza. We're in danger. Go out and deal with him. And Hassan ibn Sabit says, I, I'm not a man of warfare. I'm not a man of arms. I'm not a fighter, in other words. I'm a poet. So he, he refuses to go out to deal with him. And then the report goes on that Safiya then takes a sword and goes and has combat with um, this fellow and ends up killing him. Um, again, is it a historical fact? Um, I'm not sure. Um, but it, another one of the, the, the things about the Battle of the Trench is there are numerous narratives that have to, that have to do with the role that women played in the Battle of the Trench. Um, so for instance, um, Uh, the way I remember her name is that I try to remember Rafida, because oh Rufaida, okay that's why, yeah. So uh, uh, I think of Rafida and then I remember Rufaida. So this one was called Rufaida, and she ran the the battle hospital. She ran the hospital on the battlefield. And all the wounded, including a very important figure, Saad ibn Maaz, uh, who was wounded with an arrow, was placed in Rufaida's residence, which she had turned into a, a hospital for the wounded. Um, Rufaida ends up playing a, a very big role because uh, as you know, all these people are withdrawing, she refuses to withdraw and remains in the in the center of the battlefield. Keep that in mind, because we'll see something about Surat al-Ahzab that would make us think about the narratives that emphasize the the like Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib. Um, you know, taking the sword and doing combat with this fellow or like Rufaida. And there are many other traditions as well. Anyway, um, so, 
So, to stay with the text of the surah uh, uh, in its own progression, So we recall the vivid Quranic description description of the role that fear plays. This is Ayah 19. So that the, the translation is not, I mean, it's, it's nothing particularly uh, special for So, فَإِذَا جَاءَ الْخَوْفُ رَأَيْتَهُمْ يَنْظُرُونَ إِلَيْكَ تَدُورُ أَعْيُنُهُمْ كَالَّذِي يُخْشَ عَلَيْهِ مِنَ الْمَوْتِ They are, their eyes are rolling in absolute terror as they face the possibility of death. That extremely meek status, they are that they are reduced to pieces as they confront a threat. But if you see them in the state, you would be completely surprised at how they are when there is no fear. When there is no fear, as you find in, in Ayah 19, they, when there is no fear, they talk big and they are critical and they are nasty. And they are not nice. In fact, means that even if they do good, they do it begrudgingly. And they keep, tra- they keep track of the good they do and hold it over you. They, they, as, as we said before, that an, an essential part the commitment as a Muslim is the ability to do good and not remember it. That you present good for good's sake. But this is not the the nature of these people. And in fact, and in fact, during, these are the people who, even after the defeat of the Confederacy, what does the Quran tell us? Tell us something very, if, if we think about it, it is very natural about human beings. يَحْسَبُونَ الْأَحْزَابَ لَمْ يَزْهَبُوا so their attitude is, well, how do we know that they won't come back? So it is not that they are 
it's not just that they fell to pieces, but this, their psychology is a broken psychology. Well, how do we know it's safe now? How do we know? Because they're, they're constantly thinking of safety. They're constantly thinking about their experience of reality. Not a cause, not a principle, not a prophet. So, even when they saw the Confederates withdrew, withdraw, the, the immediate reaction is that they're still cowering. And they're still... They're, the state of anxiety continues because they are subservient to their anxiety. And then, And in fact, Allah tells Muslims that if the Confederates would show up again, these people would hope that they are anywhere but with you. Baduna fil Arab means the people who were settled in urban centers. It would always be considered an expression of, like you say, you know, of the worst thing that could happen. And the worst thing that could happen is what? Is that I would roam around with the desert people because I'm, I'm settled in an urban center. So Allah is telling us that, in fact, if the Confederates come back, they would be happy for the worst types, or the worst possible scenario where they're roaming around with the desert people, finding out about what happened to you remotely. So, in other words, it's you know, it's like when, when if you're a coward and you see a bully beating on someone, beating on your friend, or beating on your brother or something, and you you start distancing yourself from the beating because you you don't want it happen to you. So you you want to observe it as if you are receiving. You're witnessing, you, you, you adopt the role of a witness, but you don't want to be a participant. In other words, because you don't want to be beaten. Well, they want to be roaming around like with desert people, witnessing your massacre, as long as it's not happening to them. Okay. And Allah... Tells Muslims, and indeed, This is verse 20. And in fact, indeed, if they were with you, they wouldn't have fought very hard. They would have fought a little bit and ran away. The moral example here is the example set by the Prophet Alaihi So 
those who in fact their hearts, their soul are saturated with dhikrillah, dhakarallah kathira, that was, 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 here dhikr means the reality of Allah. They would, their reality would come from seeing the Prophet as their moral example. If the Prophet is making a stand, I make a stand. If the Prophet is sacrificing everything, I sacrifice everything. If the Prophet is not withdrawing, I don't withdraw. And Allah juxtaposes those who see their Prophet as their example with لَمَّا رَأَى الْمُؤْمِنُونَ الْأَحْزَابَ قَالُوا هَذَا مَا وَعَدَنَا اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَصَدَقَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَمَا زَادَهُمْ إِلَّا إِيمَانًا وَتَسْلِيمًا That those who anchor themselves in the reality set, constructed by the Prophet ﷺ being the example, when they see these overwhelming odds, the Confederates laying siege to Medina, they do what is easy to read but difficult to internalize. Because, notice, in 22, what is it that they do? Well, they say this is what God and, the, and God's apostle had promised us. Truly, God and God's apostle spoke the truth. And this increased their faith. So, confronted with overwhelming odds, they say, well, this is God's promise. And God's promise increases our faith. In a word, a level of surrender that you find with people who are completely committed to a cause. The cause is what is important. Whether and the fate of the cause is all that matters. Not my own personal fate or the fate of those that I love. Okay. Now, we come to one of Perhaps one of the most famous Quranic verses. Minal mu'minina rijalun sadaqu ma'ahadullaha alayhi. Faminhum man qada nahbahu wa minhum man yatazir wa ma baddalu tabdila. The Arabic here is sublime. 
Allah comes and says, there are believers that they took their covenant with Allah seriously. They took their covenant with God very seriously. And because they took that covenant very seriously, it is as if some of them have already passed away and the others are waiting to pass away. In other words, death has become to them a mere formality. Let's see how Muhammad translates this. Yeah. Muhammad says, and such as yet await its fulfillment without having changed their resolve in the least. They have not compromised in any part of what they, they, their commitment and their covenant and their resolve was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, probably to, we could do 24. اللَّهُ الصَّادِقِينَ بِصِدْقِهِمْ وَيُعَذِّبَ الْمُنَافِقِينَ إِنْ شَاءَ أَوْ يَتُوبَ عَلَيْهِمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ غَفُورًا رَحِيمًا That Okay, no, let's hold on. So, this revelation, um, you find in the tradition and, 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 we'll, and this goes back to, to sort of the, the historical ambiguities that you that pepper so many aspects of Surat Al-Ahzab. Um, all these reports that tell you that this verse that there are believers who have, who are either have already died in God's cause or waiting to do so. Uh, that tell you, for instance, that this was revealed about Mus'ab bin Umair. Um, Mus'ab uh, bin Umair died in the Battle of Uhud. And um, um, yeah, it was, yeah. He, uh, um, the, um, that the, the, the reports to say that the Prophet ﷺ, then when they found his the, the body of Mus'ab ibn Umayr martyred in Uhud, then the Prophet recited this verse, and that when they were bury, trying to um, uh, bury Mus'ab ibn Umayr, they, they, they found that he didn't have a garment big enough to be buried in. Uh, that the, the only, that he was 
so um, poor that the only garment they, they, that they found, if they, you know, they covered his head, his feet showed, if they covered his feet, their, his head showed. There are other reports that tell you that, no, this verse was revealed about Anas ibn al-Mudar. Uh, Anas ibn al-Mudar was, again, killed in the uh, Battle of Uhud. They, they found his body with 80 stabs and cuts. Um, so he fought valiantly in the Battle of Uhud and sustained... If you if you have eighty stabs and cuts, that means that you you, you kept fighting to the last breath. Uh, now, of course, what is the issue here? Well, Anas ibn al-Nudar and Mus'ab ibn Umayr were both killed in Uhud before Al-Ahzab. So, how could this verse have been revealed either at Uhud? Or about Uhud, when now it could be that it could be a transmission issue that people thought, well, you know, this verse seems to fit um, what these martyrs did in Uhud, and eventually that correlation turned into in in narratives and to an actual cause for revelation so people you know first say well th- this describes these great people and then eventually people start you know misremember and start saying well this was a cause for revelation um uh, the, of course the other possibility not very likely is that although this verse was revealed about in Ahzab that we have something from the Prophet that says, well, it was revealed now about a prior event, but we don't have something like that from the Prophet. But you find the sort of, and, and again, we've exp- we've been exposed to quite a few of them, but you find these types of inconsistencies in the tradition all the time where you know you're you're dealing with a later revelation and then suddenly you have reports that so you tell you oh well you know this verse existed at some earlier event and you say but how could it have existed at the earlier event when it was revealed later and the transmitters of hadith often they were not historians and this was their 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 goal was not to produce a history their goal was to preserve reports so whether the reports conflicted with one another or were inconsistent or not didn't bother them it didn't concern them they simply preserved reports okay Now, notice in 25, وَرَدَّ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بِغَيْظِهِمْ لَمْ يَنَالُوا خَيْرًا 
وكفى الله المؤمنين قتال وكان الله قويا عزيزا in 25 that Allah repelled repelled the aggressors and frustrated them but this mention that Allah saved you from having which is again a very famous Quranic phrase often misused when when people want to be cowards they'll say meaning oh Allah made it unnecessary for us to fight um, so they're they're misusing the revelation but what, what that Quranic expression let's see how Muhammad Asa translates it it says is um, oh, Muhammad Asr just says uh, since God was enough to protect the believers in battle seeing that God is most powerful and almighty it's like saying Allah made it unnecessary for the believers to fight and this is often taken as referring to the fact that the confederates were frustrated by the trench and eventually weather conditions made the confederates lose heart that cold and wind and that the that Allah made the, the, the wind that blew through uh, frustrated an enemy that is not committed to a cause. Of course, that wind affected Muslims as well because we have many reports about how cold they were. But the people that remained with the Prophet were the committed people. Okay. Now, we come to 26. وَقَذَفَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمُ الرَّابِ فَرِيقًا تَقْتُلُونَ وَتَأْسِرُونَ فَرِيقًا وَأَوْرَثَكُمْ أَرْضَهُمْ وَدِيَارَهُمْ وَأَمْوَالَهُمْ وَأَرْضًا لَمْ تَطَعُوهَا وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرًا This is 26 and 27. So, and God brought down from their strongholds those of the followers of earlier revelation who aided the aggressors. And cast terror into their hearts. Some you slew and some you made captive. And God made you heirs to their lands and their homes and their goods. And promised you lands on which you never set foot. For God has indeed the power to will anything. Um, here we pause... Because this is often taken 
or this is normally taken as a reference to the fate of the tribe of Banu Quraiza. So we remember that the, the entire battle of the Confederates, two Jewish tribes, the Jewish tribe that was expelled, Banu Nadir, played a huge role in in arranging for the confederacy that laid siege to Mecca. And Banu Khurayza, which uh, played a critical role in the, the, the real terror, and that is a, a betrayal, a stab in the back, that made Muslims particularly vulnerable. Now, here we again get into the issue of reports. Bear with me because this all is leading to a very important point. So we have reports that after the battle of the, after the withdrawal of the Confederates, the Prophet is resting and Muslims who remain with the Prophet are breathing a sigh of relief and resting and then the angel Gabriel and in fact the traditions are a little bit um yeah it, it, very much carry the, the, the air of medieval narratives that the angel Gabriel appears on a horse uh, very dusty comes to the prophet and says you guys have put down your weapons do you think the battle has ended and the, the prophet says yes we have and Gabriel says well we angels haven't put down our weapons um, you have to proceed to Banu Khuraiza and lay siege to Banu Khuraiza who betrayed you and they're still there in their fortress. And thereupon Muslims march onto Banu Khuraiza and lay siege to the, fort the, the, the um, fortress of Banu Khuraiza for 25 days before Banu Khuraiza eventually surrendered. There are reports, for instance, about the role of someone called Abu Lubaba. And that during the siege, um, Abu Lubaba reportedly betrays Muslims. How does he betray Muslims? And is that he is sent as he is a go-between, an emissary between Jew, Banu Khuraiza in their fortress and the, fortress, the, the, the forces that are laying siege to the fortress. And uh, Banu Khuraiza asks Abu Lubaba, what, is, what does Muhammad have in store for us? And Banu Lubaba 
points to his neck like this, basically meaning that he plans to slaughter you. And that then Ben Lubaba realizes that he had betrayed Muslims by by um, uh, um, leaking what the intentions of the what in the, the the sort of what Muslims have in store for the tribe of Banu Quraiza, which of course then would mean that Banu Quraiza would be would have greater resolve to resist. And uh, Banu Lubaba, as the narrative goes, then you know goes into the, this crisis of regret and contrition because he uh, and ties himself to goes to the mosque and actually ties himself to a pillar and says, "I will not release myself from this pillar until the Prophet forgives me," and, and so on and so forth. But this Ben Lubaba narrative is itself problematic because there are narratives that tell us that the way the issue with Ben Quraiza was resolved is through the role of Sa'ad ibn Mu'az. Sa'd ibn Mu'az was from the tribe of Banu Khurayza. And Banu Khurayza, before Islam, before the Prophet arrived in Medina, were allies of, sorry, I'm sorry, I misspoke. He was not from the tribe of Banu Quraiza, he was from the tribe of Aus. That Sa'd ibn Ma'az was from the tribe of Aus, and the tribe of Aus are close allies of Banu Quraiza before the Prophet came to Medina. And that after the siege continues for 25 days, the Jewish tribe of Banu Quraiza says we're willing to surrender if a member of our former allies, the Aus tribe, arbitrates our fate, decides upon our fate. Now, thinking that if we get someone from the Aus to arbitrate our fate, then because they are our former allies, they will give us favorable terms. And then they were asked, well, are you fine with Sa'd ibn Ma'az arbitrating? And Banu Khurayza says, yes, Sa'd ibn Ma'az is perfect. And the tradition goes on to say that Sa'd ibn Ma'az his ruling is that the men of the the males in Abu uh, in uh, the tribe of Banu Bukhariza be executed, and uh, the females and children be taken as captives or slaves. But 
the narrative about Abu Lubaba, if you try to make it jive with the narrative about Sa'd ibn Ma'az, it doesn't work unless there was some type of conspiracy and trickery going on. If you accept the Abu Lubaba tradition and he tells them that the Prophet plans to slaughter you, but then Sa'd ibn Mu'az arbitrates and this just happens to be his arbitration, that would have very unflattering connotations about the Prophet. That he was planning this all along. And of course, some of the commentators noticed this. And they, they, they tried to make it drive and say, well, you know, it, it is that the Prophet was hoping that this would be the ruling of Sa'd ibn Mu'az, but that he told Abu Lubaba that this is what he's hoping for, execution of the men and the enslavement of the men and the, the women and children, but he didn't tell this to Sa'd ibn Mu'az, which absolutely doesn't make sense because Abu Lubaba didn't have that type of position in Medinian society. He was not a confidant of the Prophet, and in fact, there is very little that is known about him, and doesn't seem to have even been a confidant or even close to the tribe of Banu Qurayza. So here we have an ambiguity, a historical ambiguity. The very narrative about Sa'd ibn Mu'az is itself problematic. Sa'd, the narratives say Sa'd ibn Ba'az was injured and he was hit by an arrow in the Battle of the Trench and he was on his deathbed in the in, in Rufaida's home, the, the woman who's running the hospital. And in fact, shortly after he issues his ruling, Sa'd ibn Mu'az passes away from his injury. And some of the narrative says that the basis for his ruling is Talmudic law. And it is true that in the in in Jewish law, in Deuteronomy, the punishment for a a treacherous ally is exactly that: the execution of men and the enslavement of uh, women and children. But. And there's, by the way, there was someone who wrote a, um, a, um, 
MA thesis at John Hopkins about this. While we are told that as many as 600 men were executed, there is something very fishy about these reports. One, many of the reports about the execution of the Jewish men make the Jewish men appear heroic as they face their death. In fact, there is even a report about the execution of a woman who, according to the report attributed to Aisha, goes to her death laughing. And she's reportedly the only Jewish woman executed. And she was executed because she murdered a Muslim, or reportedly, that's what. But what is thing about these reports is that they, 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 if you read them, the men, the Jewish men, are, are very brave as they go to their death. Some of the key figures from the tribe of Banu Khraiza that we were told, all the leaders of Banu Khraiza, all the, the, the men of Banu Khraiza who were supposed to have been executed, pop up as figures either in Khaybar or in Sham or in Yemen. And this is what the MA and John, that was written in John Hopkins it traced some of the, fame, the the main families of Banu Qurayza and traced that you know they were supposed to be executed, but then we get there. And This whole narrative about the fate of the tribe of Banu Qurayza. First, notice what the Quran says about it. وَأَنزَلَ الَّذِينَ ظَاهَرُوهُمْ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ مِنْ صَيَاسِيهِمْ Meaning, got those here, Ali Kitab, people of the books are, are, are the Jewish tribe, it's the Jewish tribe. To abandon al Sayasi their, their, their fortifications, to abandon their fortifications, to come down from their fortification. And made them lose heart. Some of them you kill, and a group that you kill, and a group that you capture. The language here is a typical language for what would happen in war, that you capture some as captives of war, and you kill some. There's no mention of executions or a massacre, which is inconsistent with what the Quran says about prisoners of war generally. 
But the other thing is that the very origin of the reports about Sa'd ibn Mu'az is transmitted by they're, they're, they're called, considered among the Israelite traditions, meaning the traditions by Jewish converts to Islam. So Jewish converts to Islam that said that Muslims executed 600 men, Jewish men, that went to their death very bravely. In fact, some of the some of these reports say that when given a choice to not be executed and and have their children and have their wives and have their property they chose to die with their compatriots but not save their own necks It is deeply suspicious to me the authenticity of the fate of Banu Qurayza is deeply suspicious. Some like Al-Razi and Al-Zamakhshari don't even mention the fate with great elaboration. And I suspect it was for the same reasons. Where you get the greatest elaborations is in tafsir like al-Tabari or al-Baghawi or, or Ibn Kathir, the, the, the naql-oriented tafsir. Why am I spending so much time with the ambiguities? You'll see why. But just, just keep in mind all these ambiguities that we are tracing. So, ambiguity about the role of Abu Lubaba, ambiguity about the role of Sa'd ibn Mu'adh, ambiguity about the fate of Banu Quraiza, But it doesn't even end here. There is a woman from Banu Quraiza called Raihana bint Zaid bint Amr bin Qunafa. First, there is an ambiguity as to whether Raihana was from the tribe of Banu Nadir or the tribe of Banu Quraiza. If she's from the tribe of Banu Nadir, then what is she doing being a captive of war after the Battle of the Trench? If she's from Banu Quraiza, then that makes better sense. 
There are narratives that say that Raihana bin Zayd was one of the captives, Jewish captives, and that she is given to the Prophet as a captive of war. And then we get into numerous ambiguities. And let me just go over some of them. Some say that there was never a sabi, a an enslaved woman called Raihana in the first place. Many other reports insist that no, there was a Raihana and that she was, in fact, given to the Prophet. Many reports say that the Prophet freed her and married her. But she didn't convert to Islam. Other reports say, you know, that he freed her and married her and she converted to Islam. Other reports say that the Prophet freed her and gave her a choice to remain with him, give her a choice whether to remain with him and give her a choice whether to be Muslim or not, and she chose to remain Jewish but chose to remain with him. There are even reports that say that the Prophet married her but offered to free her and she told him, I don't want to be freed. Why? Because those who were freed wives of the Prophet had to abide by the hijab. And she didn't want to abide by the hijab. So according to these traditions, she, she told them, um, uh, that keep me as a slave. Don't free me because not having to abide by the hijab maintaining my slave status is easier on me and easier on you. So we get this enormous amount of ambiguities about this Jewish character, Raihana bin Zaid, and whether she was freed, whether she there was a marriage, whether she was a Muslim, and so on. And whether she even existed in, in the first place, because that's also a part of it. But again, so yet another ambiguity. This is all going to be a part of even a if you feel like, oh, your head is hurting, 
wait, because we're leading to even a bigger headache. And then I'll tell you why we need all these headaches. Okay. I've delved into the Raihana reports. I make a very long story short. They're all of equal strength, all of them, of equal strength, which is not very strong. Whether married, not married, Muslim, not Muslim, exist, not exist. Okay. So, but the Quran itself says that this is God's favor. Your enemy was vanquished. By the way, وَأَوْرَثَكُمْ أَرْضَهُمْ وَدِيَارَهُمْ وَأَمْوَالَهُمْ وَأَرْضًا لَمْ تَطْعُوهَا That you've inherited their homes is normally the Quranic expression when a people have been exiled. And so that fellow at John, Hap John Hopkins who argues that in fact Banu Quraiza were, there, there, he says that there were certain leaders of Banu Quraiza, he traces six of them that were executed uh, as punishment for the treachery, but that the rest of the men were exiled. Um, with the women and children um, after they unlike Banu Nadir Banu Nadir was allowed to carry whatever property they can load up on their um, livestock Banu Qurayza were not allowed to take any of their property As were, that, that's at least in what I remember reading the guy who wrote that uh, thesis. I tried to find out what happened to him. I don't. I couldn't. Well, I'm not very competent with the computer anyway, so my computer searches are are, are a joke. Um, you know, the extent of what I do is I Google something, and if if someone doesn't pop off of Google, then I don't know what to do. Um, but he is the son of the very famous uh, Egyptian. Islamic scholar Jalal Kishk. Um, his son, whose first name was Khaled, Khaled Kishk, did his doctorate at John Hopkins. And, well, it might have, was it a doctorate that he wrote? No, I'm not remembering. It's many, many years ago. And so anyway, so I know that this is the the, the, the the thing that I researched, and I read it many, many years ago. This was early 90s. Um, but I, I, I don't know what, where, he, where he is now. I couldn't find, I don't know. It's unfortunate because his, his father was a great man. Um, Just notice, وَأَرْضًا لَمْ تَطَعُوهَا Muhammad Asad translates this. Um, and made you heirs to their lands, their houses, and their goods, and lands on which you have never set foot. Um, 
this is a prediction by the Quran that there are lands that you have yet never been to that will fall under your control. So, I mean, it's it's pretty re remarkable because you come at this point where Muslims are, yes, they, they you know, they broke the siege by, of, the, of the Confederates, but this is the, the fifth Hijrah and the idea that seriously, you know, we're going to be conquering lands, go from the defensive to, to actually conquering lands that we've never been to before. These are the types of predictions that you find in the Quran that, you know, tell you that the author of this book knows more than what a human being would know. Um, okay. Okay. So, we talked about the ambiguities about the Battle of Banu Khraiza. The choice, the, 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 the metaphor of two hearts in one chest, you can pick a heart that constructs reality according to your own needs and desires and whims, or a heart that abides by reality as your maker wants you to abide by. And you can't have it both ways. The very logic of this is that the path of those who pick a heart that commits to the the referee, the source of truth, being Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's a much harder path. But with all the material defeats that that path entails, it also entails miraculous victories that come directly from your Lord. So it is not that your blessings will make rational sense. They are an act of grace. Then it comes to another, we, it told us the wives of the Prophet are your mothers. But then it will come to a challenge confronting the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. A huge challenge. And before we jump into that, keep in mind the subtext here From, we are talking about the battle of the trench and the survival of this community, but 
repeatedly the same Quranic style of going back to the microdynamics of family relations, the microdynamics of social relations, and says the victory begins here. Not in the grand strategies. The victory begins here in the purity of the heart. Let's, let's take a two-minute break and then we'll get into the wives of the Prophet. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So, then verse 27, or sorry, verse 28, which immediately then moves to talking about the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. Ya ayyohan nabi, qul li azwajika, in kuntunna turidna al-hayata al-dunya wa zinataha fata'alayna umatta'kunna wa usarrihkunna sirahan jamila. Wa in kuntunna turidna rallaha wa rasoolahu wa dara al-akhira fa inna allaha a'adda lil-muhsinati minkun ajran azimah. This is 28 and 29, let's see. Speaking to the Prophet say to your wives, if you desire the life of this world and its charms, well then I shall provide for you and release you in a becoming manner. And if you desire God and God's apostle and thus the good of the life and the hereafter, and then know that verily for the doers of good among you, God has readied a mighty reward. So the historical incident here is that the wives of the prophet were making increasing material demands on him. Basically, this satisfied was the state of poverty that they lived in. And that this incrementally becomes a serious issue a troubling, burdensome issue to the point that the Prophet والسلام, uh, doesn't or swears or abstains from um, being with his wives for 29 days. And And that at the end of these 29 days comes the revelation that the prophet is to give them a choice. Either they choose to remain with him and accept the harsh life that they would face with him 
or the prophet would release them, meaning divorce them. And it said, And I will let you go. And in letting you go, I will give you your rights and more. And I will let you go beautifully, meaning without hard feelings, without hardship, without pain, without so on. Why does this occur right after the Battle of the Trench? Well, when Banu Nadir are defeated, there is yet another windfall. And the release from the withdrawal of the Confederates and the spoils of war that came from the defeat of Banu Nadir, the Prophet's wives saw the spoils of war going to everyone but the Prophet. And they naturally said, well, wait, why is everyone getting after we, we've put up with all this hardship, why is everyone getting a bonus? Why is everyone getting their, their even the migrants who were homeless for up to this point, they got to get new homes. They got to, the, the homes that were left by Banu Nadir were inhabited by many of these migrants. But the only people whose fortunes and status remained unchanged, we've got nothing, are us. And the, the, you know, the, the shattering, the, 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 the gossiping, the talking increased amongst them and more or less they formed a united front in saying, we want more. And it culminates in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala coming and saying, you either remain with the Prophet at whatever conditions that which, which they knew it means have nots till the end. Or you let you go and you'll have, you know, you can, you can have all the things that you, you are talking about, but not with this man. And being given the choice, all of them choose the prophet. Although, again, we get that element of ambiguity. We get, because we get a woman called Al-Amiriya who reportedly, her response was, no, I choose divorce. And the traditions say that Al-Amiriya, although we don't know very much about her at all, that later on, especially after the death of the Prophet, 
She used to call her say, go around saying, that I am the miserable one, that she, she regretted her choice. Um, Allah Adam, I mean, um, again, it's very hard to, 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 to figure out whether the reports about this woman are historical or not. But at that point, the, the Prophet ﷺ has nine wives. Aisha, Hafsa, Um Salama, Um Habiba, Sauda, and then th these are the, the Qurayshi wives. And then there is Safiya, who's um, from the tribe of Banu Khaybar, uh, there is a woman called Maimoun al-Hilaliya, um, who's not a Qureshi. She is, I'll, I'll, I'll mention, talk about this in a second. Okay. And then there is a woman, Zainab bin Jahsh, um, and there is Juwairiya. Okay. The issue, though, is that at Safiya does not become a wife of the Prophet till after the battle of Banu Khaybar, which is a few years after the battle of the trench. Maimuna doesn't become a wife of the Prophet till the seventh itself seventh Hijri year, which is again a couple of years after the Battle of the Trench. So either this revelation is later than the Battle of the Trench, and although it was revealed after the Battle of the Trench, it was included in Surat Al-Ahzab, or, or when this revelation was made, was received, Safiya was not a wife of the Prophet and Maimuna was not a wife of the Prophet either. So either this revelation, this ayah, is later and then it was included in the surah or when this revelation was received the prophet didn't have nine wives he had lesser wives than nine by probably seven and you might say well Okay, so the prophet had seven wives. What's the problem? Aha, uh -huh. well, you'll see what the problem is. It is not just that this revelation comes and gives the wives of the prophet a choice. They, in turn, are demanded to accept the same type of choice 
do you choose the heart that is committed to God with all that the sacrifices that in, that entails or do you choose a heart because two hearts doesn't work again that same theme right that you can't be with the prophet and say but that's not fair we're not getting our share why is life so hard why are there so many sacrifices And here I'm going to have to just go out of order because I think for the sake of presentation a little bit. Now notice in Surah Al-Ahzab in this Surah If you move forward to verse 50 and 51 and 52, something happens in Surah Al-Ahzab that is very important. And that is, as we will see, but I'm, I'm just skipping ahead to, 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 because that will help the presentation. is that Allah comes and says not only are there regulations for the wives of the Prophet but as we will see arguably Allah puts a limit and tells the Prophet you cannot have any more wives that Whoever you're married to, you're married to, and you cannot add to your wives. That even if you are attracted to them. Now, we pause again and we think, okay, so if this is a cap on how many wives he can have, then if this revelation is at the time of the battle of the trench, how could he have married Maimuna and Safiya later on? Because the, the number of wives was capped. So if we say no, well, no, this then means that this revelation was after the battle of the trench. And at a minimum, it would be after the battle of Khaybar. So then Why was that revelation added to Surah Al-Ahzab? 
Why was it revealed later and added Surah Al-Hazab? This is such a predicament that Muhammad Asad concludes that some of this revelation, that in this, this surah, some of it was revealed as late as the ninth Hijri year. So that you have most of the surah revealed in the fifth year, and some of it revealed nearly towards the end of the lives of the prophet, life of the prophet, but then consolidated as part of Surah Al-Ahzab. But if you believe in the unitary thematic message of a surah, that presents a challenge, doesn't it? Methodologically, you'd say, well, but then, so, if, why would a much later revelation, a later revelation that says to the prophet, okay, no more wives, would be added to Surah Al-Ahzab? Now, I'll tell you something that what adds to this um, uh, what adds to this predicament what adds to this to this challenge um, is that there is a bigger ambiguity that surrounds the wives of the Prophet Okay, so notice here first we get verse fifty. Ya ayyuhan nabi, inna ahlanna laka azwajaka allati atayta ujurahun. وما ملكت يمينك مما أفاء الله عليك وبنات عمك وبنات عماتك وبنات خالك وبنات خالاتك التي هاجرن معك وامرأة مؤمنة إن وهبت نفسها للنبي إن أراد النبي أن يستنكحها خالصة لك من دون المؤمنين قد علمنا ما فرضنا عليهن في أزواجهن وما ملكت أيمانهن لكي لا يكون عليك حرج وكان الله غفورا رحيما ترجي من تشاء منهن وتؤوي إليك من تشاء ومن ابتغيت ممن عزلت فلا جناح عليك ذلك أدنى أن تقر, أن تقر عيونهن ولا يحزن ويرضين بما أتيتهن كلهن والله يعلم ما في قلوبكم 
وكان الله عليما حليما لا يحل لك النساء من بعد ولا أن تبدل بهن من أزواج ولو أعجبك حسنهن إلا ما ملكت يمينك وكان الله على كل شيء رقيبا So this entire revelation Look So Prophet We have made lawful to you the wives unto whom you has paid their dowers. So your wives. As well as those whom your right hand has come to possess from among the captives of war. Whom God hath bestowed upon thee. And we've made lawful to you the daughters of your paternal uncles and aunts. And the daughters of your maternal uncles and aunts. And who have, mig- who have migrated with you to Yathrib. And any believing woman who offers herself freely to the Prophet, whom the Prophet might be willing to wed. This later being but a privilege for you and not for other believers, seeing that we have already made known what we have enjo- enjoined upon them with regard to their wives and those whom their rights hands may possess. And in order that the, you... Be not burdened with undue anxiety, for God is indeed most forgiving, a dispenser of grace. Know that mayest put off for a time whichever of them, of them you please, and mayest take unto you whichever you please, and that you seek out any from whom you has kept away for a time, you will incur no sin thereby. This will make it more likely that their eyes are gladdened whenever they see you. And that they do not grieve whenever they are overlooked. And that all of them may find contentment in whatever you have to give them. For God alone knows what is in your heart. And God is indeed all-knowing and forbearing. No other woman shall henceforth be lawful to you nor art you allowed to supplant any of them by other wives, even though their beauty should please you greatly. None shall be lawful for you beyond those whom you already have come to possess, and God keeps watch over everything. So first, this revelation that says what is lawful to you are the women that you've married by paying a dower and a woman that gives herself to the prophet wahabat nafsaha now wahabat nafsaha means this is the woman that goes to the prophet and says marry me because I give myself to you and in this situation you marry this woman without a dower. It's a normal marriage, but it's a dowerless marriage. But dowerless marriage marriages are banned for anyone but the prophet. So the prophet can marry a woman for a dower, can marry a woman who gives herself to the prophet through the hibba process without a dower but this is not allowed for any other person other than the prophet but then it comes and says 
you may marry from your paternal uncle's side, you may marry from your maternal uncle's side as long as they migrated with you. So from this, we understand that if you are limited to marrying women from Banu Hashem, that's the uncle, the, the maternal uncle side, and you are limited to marrying from Banu Zahra, that's the maternal uncle side, as long as they migrated with you. So if she didn't migrate with you, then you cannot marry her. And in fact, there is a report that the Prophet ﷺ was engaged to be married to a woman when this revelation was received Um, who was not a woman who had not migrated with the prophet and after this revelation the, the, the marriage didn't go through because of this revelation so the marriage the, these verses limit who the prophet can validly marry to Banu Zahra and Banu Hashim, as long as they migrated to the Prophet. And captives of war, right? And then by this And henceforth, you're not allowed to add anyone else or to supplant the bedal. Let me just explain the supplant part. In pre-Islamic Arabia, it was not unusual for husbands to exchange wives. To say, I give you my wife, you give me your wife. To switch wives. And most commentators say that what this, the supplanting part, refers to is this exchange thing. And in fact, there is a tradition about a man that comes to the Prophet, sees Aisha, and he says to the Prophet, I want to exchange my wife for Aisha. My wife is gorgeous woman. I'll give her to you if you give me Aisha. And the Prophet responds and said, that's prohibited in Islam. That has become prohibited in Islam. Okay. Now,
normally what we all learn is that after this revelation, the prophet became limited to nine wives. However, there is a report, there, well, there are a number of reports that in which um, um, in which Aisha it reportedly says and it, uh, the other than Aisha there was someone else as well who was it uh, did I write it down um Oh, um, the the man who um, okay yeah. first the man who wanted to exchange wives with the prophet Um, his name was Ayina bin Hisn al Ghazari. Uh, it, it's the the report is actually much ta much longer than that because the uh, Aisha asked the Prophet, "What did this man want?" And the Prophet basically, you know, says comments about how how about the ignorance of the man. Anyway, so but there is reports that go back attributed to Aisha um, and also Um Salama and Ibn Abbas that say that the Prophet was never limited to nine wives. That while you have someone like Enes says that these verses told the prophet not to marry anyone beyond the nine wives, Aisha is specifically asked, was the prophet limited to nine wives? And Aisha responds, why would you say that? And Um Salama has a very similar tradition. And the, the and the response is, no, he was not. He was not limited to nine wives. He was limited by the Quranic revelations to women who are from his maternal side to his paternal side who migrated with him, and to captives of war. So, in fact, there was never a limit, according to these traditions, to the number of wives that the Prophet can take. But what is even more important 
is that there is an enormous amount of disagreement and confusion about who were the wives of the Prophet. There are some that we absolutely know, like Umm Salama, Aisha, Sauda, and so on. And whether the Prophet married anyone as without a dower, in other words, as a hiba, and whether the Prophet had any captives of war that he didn't marry. And let me just give you a taste of, of this. Okay, I'm just gonna pick someone like a Qurtubi, just for his, uh, the, the woman that the prophet was supposedly engaged to and then couldn't marry because of this revelation, her name is Um Hani. Uh, um, okay. the, what, I'm, what I'm looking for is that you find an enormous amount of disagreement as to whether whether women whether the Prophet married women through this hiba procedure, whether this process of, of, of marrying without a dower. And what is even more surprising is that there are some reports that there were women engaged to marry the Prophet who the marriage didn't go through because he died. In other words, that he was engaged to marry further women when he died. Now, there is an aspect to this, is that when I looked into this, I found that when the prophet died, a number of people for motivations that we, we probably can understand, claimed that their daughter or their sister or whoever was engaged to marry the prophet. But, this is one aspect, but there are women all through from the time, from the fifth year, Hizra, from the Battle of the Trench, up to the time that the Prophet died, that there are contested reports as to whether they, in fact, were married to the Prophet or not. And some reports about 
women, can you, uh, uh, Romy, there, there's a the report about the uh, the uh, woman, it's known as Al-Mar'a Allati Sta'azat Min Al-Rasul. There are even reports that there are women that he married, but the marriage was never consummated. So, while we know there are nine marriages, you, you, you get a, a, an anarchy of reports about whether there were further marriages planned, whether there were marriages entered into after this revelation. And in part, we are told, well, you know, it is because the, 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 the limiting was not to the number nine, but the limiting was to relatives from the maternal side, paternal side, women who actually migrated with the Prophet so he couldn't marry a Christian or a Jew, for example, other than captives of war. So yet another ambiguity at the heart of what, at, at the heart of Surah Al-Ahzab. Yet another important historical ambiguity. And that is about who the wives were, the number of the wives, and just keep this in mind. Okay. The, is it is it mentioned in Bagawi or Qurtubi? Um, I don't look that up. Is uh, okay, but do you know what year Asma bint al Naaman was? Okay, it's okay. Yeah, um, the, the the I was asking about. I mean, I don't want to get into the, the that tradition because it's not authentic, and I don't want to. Um, but there is a woman called Asma bint Naaman who, after the the whole battle of the trench, quite late in the Medina period, is supposed to have married the prophet, and then the prophet, the 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 she. She says something very rude to the prophet, and then he, so he releases her. Um, basically, the, the the marriage is never consummated. Um, before I move on, let me see if I can uh, one other thing that may, might work, since I okay. 
I, I, I don't know how to to do this without it being taken. Okay, so here's it like in Tafsir al-Qurtubi. Okay, so he mentions marriages in the sixth Hijri year to Raihana, for instance, Maimuna in the seventh Hijri year, and then the, the these are, and then he talks about um, the contested marriages. So he says, for instance, um, that it is reported that Fatima bint al-Dahak al-Kalabiyya that he married her in the eighth Hijri year, but that the marriage was not consummated, and that among them is Asma bint Nu'man bin Ajun, known as Rajuniya. Um, And this is the woman who spoke rudely, and that this marriage wasn't consummated. I'm trying to see if I if uh, doesn't give a year. Okay. Then there is among them Qutayla bin Qais. Qutayla is she. Her brother is an Ashas ibn Qais. Um, reportedly that she came from Yemen, Hadramut in Yemen, and that by the time she reached Medina, she learns, her and her brother learned that the Prophet had died, and they both apostated from Islam. Also, Um Sharik al-Azdiyah, who is known as Ghuzayya bint, bint Jabir Hakim from the tribe of Abu Bakr, um, who it was not known whether she actually was married to the Prophet. Khawla bint Huzayl ibn Hubayra, uh, not known whether she was married to the Prophet. Shuraf bint Khalifa, that reportedly married but not consummated. Layla bint al-Khutaym um, that again married but not consummated. Amra bint Muawiyah Kindiya that she also married but very late and arrived by the time she arrived to consummate the marriage, the Prophet had died. Ibn Ibn Jandab bin Dumra al-Jundaiyah that reportedly she married and consummated. Um, Duba'a bin Amir Safiya bin Bishama bin bin Nadla, um, Layla bint al-Khutaym, 
خولة بنت حكيب بن أمية جمرة بنت الحارس بن عوف المري سودة قرشية she this is other than Sauda his famous wife خطبها الرسول وكانت مصبية فقالت أخف أن يضعوا صبيتي عند رأسك فحمدها ودع لها okay now so when you delve into this you discover as I said that once the Prophet ﷺ died, there were many that came and claimed that he was planning to marry this woman and this woman, and it didn't go through. But other than that, that the whole issue of, other than the, the famous wives, the wives like Aisha, like Sauda, like Um Habiba, that the whole issue of the wives of the Prophet is surprisingly historically contestable. The amount of historical ambiguities surrounding the facts, facts, historical facts, related to his wives are so numerous and that later Muslims, especially Muslims in the modern age, reacting to criticisms by Orientalists made an effort to say, well, no, it was capped at nine, and we, we know it was nine, and there was nothing but nine, and all of that. Now, historical ambiguity is not something that Allah is not aware of. If there is historical ambiguity, Allah knows that there is this historical ambiguity. And when I read the Quran, and I know that there is a historical ambiguity that is not resolvable, then I ask myself, what is the message of the Quran in light of this historical Ambiguity. So we know that this part of the revelation, it might be that the, the part that we, we know for sure is that after the Battle of the Trench, the wives of the Prophet, whoever were his wives at the time, whatever their number, started pressuring him for material things. And that 
the Quran, Allah came and clearly said, you have a choice. A choice of principle and commitment. Either you choose life with this man based on the principle or without any hard feelings. He let you go and in fact the, the text of the Quran any fair reading would say there is no retaliation. So I know that I'm, I'm taxing your patience but Keep in mind this further historical ambiguity. Beyond saying that, then it will come and say to the Prophet okay, you are limited as to who you can marry. Either you're limited to your current wives or you're limited to wives who are either people who are related to you maternal side or paternal side who migrated with you or you're limited to captives of war whether that's nine or less than nine or more than nine. That's the part that's ambiguous. Now, let's go back and pick up the order because we, we went out of order. So I'm going to come back to this. Okay. So, first Allah explains to the wives of the Prophet that their reward, in the same way that their reward is unlike the reward of other women, their punishment is unlike so if they stay married to the Prophet and they commit a fahsha, a major sin, their punishment will be far more severe than the normal punishment of other human beings. So there is this added accountability from their status as the mothers of the believers and from remaining married to the Prophet If they don't want this added accountability, then they shouldn't remain married to the Prophet. Okay, so this takes us to 32. Ya Nisa al-Nabi, lastunnaka ahadin minan nisa, in taqaytunna fala takhdana bilqawl, فيطمع الذي في قلبه مرض وقلنا قولا معروفا. So 
then Allah makes the point very explicit. Wives of the Prophet, you are not like other women. You have a very special status. So, So, when you speak, make sure that now the expression here is amazing. Make sure that let's see how Muhammad Azad translates it. So this is 32. He translates as, Hence be not over soft in your speech, lest any whose desire is diseased. Taqdana bil qawl is not just softness. It's not that. It's Don't, when you speak to someone, setting aside formality and professionalism, when you speak professionally and formally, there is no khudu'a bil qawl. So when I'm when I'm speaking in a professional tone, in a formal tone, that's never a khutbah bilqawl. If I am being informal with you, either could be flirtatious, could be cute, could be comical. Like, I'm not flirting, but I'm just being funny. Uh, in a tone other than being professional or former, formal, especially if that tone communicates that I am of a status lower than you. That's al khudwab al-qawl. So the demand here is like speak. So when you say, if you want to be God-fearing, la taqdana al-qawl means that speak in a manner consistent with your status. You are not the equal to any of these men. You are their mothers. You are superior. So when you speak, speak accordingly. You are not there to joke with them. You are not there to be cutesy with them. You are not there to be their buddies. You're there to play the role of the moral guides to this ummah. But then, look, something that 
everyone just completely overlooks. Literally, is like say, and when you speak, speak decently and rationally, reasonably. Notice here that in order for that command to have any meaning whatsoever, it needs a rational reader. If you have a reader that doesn't want to use their brain, they're going to read this and say, but God didn't give me guidance. What does that mean? What does a qawl ma'roof mean? What is, okay, so it's like saying be be modest. What does that mean? I need I need details. This is very critical to the message, as we will see, of Surah Al Ahzab. Allah's guidance here requires people who actually use the rational faculties and engage the text as reasonable interpreters of the text, not as robots. Okay. Then right after that, وَقَرْنَ فِي بِيُوتِكُنَّ وَلَا تَبَرَّجْنَ تَبَرُّجُ الْجَاهِلِيَّ الْأُولَى وَأَقِمْنَ الصَّلَاةَ وَآتِينَ الزَّكَاةَ وَأَطِعْنَ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهِ إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيُذْهِبَ عَنْكُمُ الرِّجْسَ أَهْلَ الْبَيْتِ وَيُطَهِّرَكُمْ تَطْهِيرًا وَاذْكُرْنَ مَا يُتْلَى فِي بِيُوتِكُنَّ مِنْ آيَاتِ اللَّهِ وَالْحِكْمَةِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ لَطِيفًا خَبِيرًا So right after that, Allah speaking to them, says first remain in your homes in dignity it doesn't mean you are imprisoned in your homes it means that the place for your your dignity your status is your home but So avoid the tabarruj which we've encountered before. The tabarruj of jahiliyyah and the commentators on the Quran go have long discussions about what a jahiliyyah al-ula means. What, what is the first jahiliyyah? And some of them even say, oh, it is jah- the jahiliyyah during the time of Ibrahim. It is jahiliyyah the time of Musa. It is jahiliyyah. We don't need to get into that. What the focal point, though, is when they discuss what is the tabarruj that is inten- intended here. And what is the jahiliyyah that is intended here? And we know that in from various reports that in the the jahili period, it was not uncommon for women to wear clothes that is not sewn on the sides. 
and to walk, you know, clothes that is open on the sides, or to wear clothes that is so light that it is quite revealing. Or the description of a tabarruj is التقصر والتغنج في or التبختر that to walk in ways that brings a considerable amount of attention or either walk or to be in ways or to come out in public in ways that brings a considerable amount of attention to the self. Some of the reports tells us something about the tabarruj al-jahiliyyah that make it sound like, you know, as corrupt as our modern age. So some of these reports, for instance, say that it was not uncommon for a woman in the jahili period to sit with her husband and her boyfriend and then to start having sex with both men, with one man focusing on her upper side and another focusing on her lower side, and then for these men to switch. Um, that's an actual paraphrasing of a report, of, of a number of reports. Um, So there is a broad range in the practices of jahiliyyah that have to do with very risque behavior, with sexual promiscuity, and with tabarruj from various levels of calling attention to the self that, again, requires that reasonable interpreter that says the point is Allah is saying you have a special status and your status, you are not to be seen especially you, in your status, as sexual symbols or objects of desire or objects of entertainment, you are to play the role of the mothers of the believers and examples, idols, moral idols for society. Some of the wives of the Prophet, there are some like Aisha who obviously her understanding of these ayat didn't prevent her from playing a very active political role. And indeed, the critics of Aisha, this is shows you how issues of gender mixed with issues of interpretation. So the critics of Aisha, among the things that they criticize Aisha for, 
is, oh, you violated the hijab. Sunni interpreters go to great lengths to apologize for Aisha by saying things like, oh, well, no, she got, she was politically active, but she was always, you know, behind a curtain on her camel in a, in a howdage. Or, um, no, she wasn't actually politically active. She actually went out in the battle of the camel to try to make peace between the warring parties, but she didn't mean to play any active role or take any position. She just wanted to go and, you know, mend defenses. The, the amount of remarkable apologetics by male interpreters to get around the fact that different wives of the Prophet understood this prescription of if you speak to someone, speak to them behind the hijab, understood it differently. It bothered a lot of male interpreters. So on the one hand, you have someone like Aisha. On the other hand, you have someone like Sauda. Sauda would go out, go to prayer. And in a number of, in the reports that is transmitted in different versions, Sauda is asked, why isn't it, why is it that you never go to Hajj or Umrah like your, like the other wives of the Prophet? And she said, well, I have already done my Hajj. But beyond the Hajj, that I've, beyond the duty of the Hajj, Allah has that Allah has told me to stay at your home, stay in your home. And for me, I will never leave my home. In other words, I will not go traveling again until the day I die. So she would go to prayer in the mosque, but she interpreted that as meaning no mahaj or umrah for me. I will remain in my home beyond that. I will not travel until I die. But obviously, the tradition at the same time tells you that otherwise didn't see any consistency between this Quranic verse, verse and on going to Hajj and Umrah, Hajj or Umrah every year. Okay. So, speak seriously, speak formally, and the place of dignity for you is your home, and avoid tabarruj, drawing any type of, you are the mothers of believers, you are not to draw attention to your physical appearance. And of course, 
and prayer and zakah and obey God and the Prophet. And then this most remarkable statement, you, you who are close, the family of the Prophet, Allah wants to purify you. Now, why would Allah wants Allah wants to purify you, especially you, so that you are beyond reproach and beyond suspicion and beyond blame. That can only make sense if they are to be a moral example immoral idol clearly when you say alil bayt the very language a priori it applies to anyone who is part of the household of the prophet and also a blood relation of the prophet and this clearly applies to the grandchildren of the Prophet, Al-Hasan al-Hussein, and to the daughter of the Prophet, who's married to the cousin of the Prophet. There are a lot of ahadiths in which the, the, the Prophet والسلام, is, covers Al-Hasan al-Hussein and he says, this is my al-bayt, and then Umm Salama and sees him, and she, and she wants to jump under the cover as well and says, aren't I part of your al bayt and, and according to these traditions says, yes, and you too. But the moral example, although the, the wives of the Prophet are to be a functional moral example in the light during the life of the of the community the alil bayt those who are blood relations and a part of the household of the prophet now the remarkable thing is that the wives who play a role, let's strike that. The coherence across Sunni and Shia sources as to the moral example of Fatima and Ali and Hassan and Hussein in terms of the historical integrity of the sources. The tawatur al-masadr, the, the level of tawatur in the transmission of the moral example of these individuals cannot be compared with the historical turbulence as to the historical facts surrounding the historical reality around the wives of the Prophet. 
So this is one thing that you immediately notice. That if you are looking for moral, ethical roles, the precedence that we get from Fatima and Ali and Hassan and Hussein, these examples reach the level of Tawatur. Most of the traditions that we have about what this wife did or that wife did are far more historically ambiguous. I'm going to come back to this point, but let's keep going in order. What time is it? 9.42. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, let's not keep going. Okay, so we stopped at 35. We're getting we're getting heated. We're we're, we're we're you know getting closer to the. Um, but let's let's stop. The, the master the master of ceremonies is in here. Oh. Oh. The master of ceremonies is not here. That that that's my uh, my wife who's absconded. She, she has withdrawn from the battle. <laughs> she has declared the household awra and ridden, retreated. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I actually was saving our house from our dog. <laughs> so <laughs> our German Shepherd was eating up the house. And I was actually, alhamdulillah, for the live stream because I was actually listening to the live stream as I was going down. But I was behind. So I actually didn't. I, didn't realize that you had ended, so I was a little bit behind you. But alhamdulillah, that was truly people amazing. Who, people who attend the next halakha, uh, who haven't attended this halakha, will be very lost because yeah. this halakha was communicating a, a, a critical bridge of information. Um, but anyway, that's the thing. I mean, it, it was really amazing because, you know, like the. Um, all of the the ambiguity i mean this is all stuff that i i don't think i mean i've never heard anywhere i don't know if people have heard it but this is it adds so much um richness to our tradition and, and, and we're not we're not there yet about the purpose of this ambiguity that we're not there yet there, there's a reason but I'm, i haven't gotten to it alhamdulillah well i have historically been a terrible student of history so this has been an amazing jihad, and um, but also an incredible, um, you know, enlightenment because it's like when you actually care to learn something, it's it's so much easier and so much more powerful and so much more meaningful for for the tradition. So I know you're building up to something really exciting, <clears throat> and um, I'm just you know so see what happens when you when you don't come for Aid. It's like <laughs> you miss all the great stuff. <laughs> Hopefully people will have a chance to catch up before next time. Thank you for being with us, whoever is with us. Elaine, you get special props because you stayed all the way through. And uh, alhamdulillah, thank you for everyone. Um, enjoy the rest of your Aid, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you, inshallah, on Tuesday. Have a wonderful rest of the weekend. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>